0: Hey guys, this is Jordan, your show host, and also one of the founders of the Tribe Mastermind. I just wanted to give you guys a little shout out to let you know that we got something special going on with Tribe Mastermind. This is a high level mastermind for property management entrepreneurs that are interested in talking about the big picture. Yes, most certainly business, the tactical, the strategic, but also the big why behind why we're on this journey together. So if you're interested in learning more about Tribe, what this mastermind looks like, you can get more details at tribemastermind.com. Check it out. Love to see you there.
1: I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Week Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it.
0: Welcome, closers. This is the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you live. I'm your host, Jordan Weyla and this is the place to come for weekly interviews with world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who open up and share their secret sauce so that you can apply their knowledge to grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100, 1,000, or 10,000 units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. Don't forget to join us in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we talk profit, share resources, and ask podcast guests follow-up questions after the interview. Today, I'm interviewing Mike Schrepfer with Heirloom Property Management. Mike, this company is based out of Duluth, Minnesota. And Mike, I wanted to have you on to talk about a variety of things, but specifically helping your team invest in real estate this whole real estate investment theme for whatever reason seems to be under within the property management community you got a couple of people doing deals here and there but there's probably a bigger opportunity helping the team taste some of the goodness is part of that so i'm excited to have you on thanks for coming on the show mike
2: sure welcome thanks for having me
0: mike what's the weather in balmy duluth minnesota like today
2: it's it's warm today versus the weekend. It's about 15 degrees, but uh, it's been negative uh, 10 this weekend. So, got a record snowfall of I think 38 inches in February. It's been a wind. It feels like winter, even though it's middle of March.
0: 15 degrees, man. That's that's lawn chair weather. Exciting. Yeah. So, uh, does, does that complicate day to day management with that that kind of weather you just described?
2: Oh, this is nothing. It, uh, three weeks ago, uh, we had. The coldest weather in 26 years, it was negative 30 for three days straight with a wind chill of negative 52 or 58 or something like that. Wow. Like I think that's where gasoline freezes almost, and like <laughs> <laughs> it was, we had eleven homes have pipes break with heat on. Like he didn't go out, and the pipe still broke because there like was like a draft in the basement. Um, and and it just yeah, that was that was tough. That was tough.
0: Fun. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about real estate investment. I said it in the intro. I feel like there's a bigger opportunity than most operators take advantage of. We've talked previously, you were one of these guys that kind of got into property management through the vehicle of real estate investment. Talk to me about uh, your background. how do you get into real estate investment?
2: Yeah. So I, uh, I started as an investor first, uh, started in 2002 when I was 18, um, I bought a house every year through college and fixed it up as kind of a job. I have always been kind of an entrepreneur. So that was something I could do then. And so I graduated with a handful and a little bit of experience and got into it full time after college. Um, and that was, you know, a handful of years before the downturn. So um, I built up a portfolio before the downturn and um and then jumped right back in after a couple of years, like 2010, um, and have been at it um, investing in 2010 ever since. So I really started out as an investor first, um, self-managing, managing stuff for some friends, um, got into construction probably 2006 and, um, started hiring staff and doing the renovations for investments and, and then got into property management. So it's kind of like investor construction, property manager. Um, but property manager is the face of what we do, um, and is our brand and, you know, kind of the entrepreneurial venture that we're a part of. So, yeah.
0: How did you get started at 18? What was the impetus or the catalyst?
2: I, sure, sure. Um, it's I really simple. It's kind of by accident. I uh, lived on campus with some friends and um, we wanted to move off campus and all lived together. So uh, it made sense. I had a little business in high school and I had the down payment saved up. And so I was burning a hole. So it made sense to buy a property at that time and then you know live for free that was kind of the goal and then i realized that there was uh, a lot of opportunity beyond that i I really opened me up to all the numbers of it and so without really understanding any of the numbers um it made sense to do um you know as an 18 year old and then i understood all the numbers understood the value i created with the sweat equity all that stuff and i was into that so um that kind of led me from there on forward
0: So you're building out your own portfolio. At some point you feel this need to have, you're wanting to expand and you want to have high quality property management. Was that gap part of the impetus to do your own thing? Like, did you go, did you churn through a lot of property management companies prior to starting your own?
2: Yeah, never used a different property management company. I uh, looked at a couple of them in town, and um, I guess I, you know, I was probably a little naive to it in the beginning. But um, I felt like um, I was pretty hands-on, so I could do it a little better. And um, I just kind of went my own way for quite a long time. But I've always been really entrepreneurial, so um, I have a couple other businesses that I started before that, and it just kind of made more sense to to make a business out of it for me and my my personality than to hire someone and stay as an investor. I really like the control and our portfolio grew a lot. Like right now I'm at 125 homes. So it, it kind of made sense to get into the property management space cause I was kind of in it. I was, I was managing that portfolio which was growing plus some friends and family stuff. So I had a, a pretty decent little book of properties I was managing just, you know, on my own.
0: Are those 125 units or homes?
2: It's a mix. It's a lot of homes. Um, it's, it, there's some units in there, some duplexes and triplexes and stuff like that. Um, but it's, it's a lot of single family stuff.
0: So how does running a property management company impact your investment strategy? Do you pick up deals when your existing clients are ready to exit?
2: Uh, here and there, um, as an investor, I really keep them separate. Um, I really like it totally separate. Um, as an investor, I'm kind of a little bit, um, um, moving on beyond the single family type investment and kind of getting into some bigger stuff. Um, and so I really like to more, um, actually share still, um, deals that come through our business, um, with other investors that we work with, um, that are really focused on that. And over the last handful of years, I've started to focus on some just different kinds of investments and stuff like that. I still do the single family, but, um. I do a lot of off. I haven't bought a deal on the market in three years. So I do a lot of off market stuff, networking type stuff. So, you
0: know, do you have a brokerage attached to the business?
2: Yep. Uh, I mean, legally we have to be, um, we don't do a lot of transactions, maybe 20 or 30 a year. It's not a serious endeavor. It's just more to, I look at it as being a competent property manager, servicing investors that want to grow.
0: Yeah. Good way to put it. I like that. So when I, investor comes to you and they says they say i'm ready to sell what is your protocol do you immediately reach out to your existing network and try and make a transaction happen
2: yeah we do that um and and then we can list it for them if they'd like it's it's always nice to be or handy i feel like to not have a middleman in, in a transaction when there's tenants involved so just kind of for ease of the tenants it's helpful to be the listing agent but we we like to share it with all the all the activate at all the active buyers anytime so yeah
0: What do you think the average number of properties per
2: landlord client that you have is? There's no properties per landlord client. It was 2.6 last time I looked. That was units, not properties, but 2.6.
0: That's a little higher than average. Okay. So would you say that your client profile skews more towards investors than accidental landlords?
2: Um, yes and no, we're, I've kind of thought this is really an interesting thing across markets, across the the country. So we are in a town that is older. Um, 90% of our housing is built before world war II. And so a lot of that kind of housing, um, you know, went through the great depression, stuff like that. We have a lot of stuff, 1890s to 1920s for bigger structures. And there were no building codes really anywhere until about the 60s. And so we have an awful lot of homes that are turned into duplexes, triplexes, five units, stuff like that. And that's really what drives it in our market. So it's really common for a person to own one property, but it's a duplex um, in our market. And I know that the amount of the ratio of single family to duplex rental in other markets in the country is much different than in an older city like this. So that's kind of why I think it's a little higher on the per unit per owner thing.
0: So let's talk about the real estate investment journey with the team. That's obviously something that's meaningful to you. It's a big part of your strategy for financial freedom. What caused you to want to kind of bridge that chasm in terms of helping your team also have access? Was it something that that you were being asked about or did you approach them?
2: Um, It was something that I really wanted to do. So I, I, felt like I kind of got to the point where if I wanted to quit today, um, I, I could and I would be comfortable and I'm a typical entrepreneur that works really hard for the idea that they don't have to. Um, mm-hmm. But I made it there pretty quick. and so I really wanted to share that and I realized that it doesn't take very many transactions um, to create enough passive income to be able to make that decision. I mean, and you know I, I kind of looked at it as um, you know if someone makes fifty thousand dollars a year, um, in our market, we have a pretty good, um, rate of return on our investments. and It would be a really cool thing. The biggest gift I could give versus a 401k or a raise or a match is instead to teach this. And so I created a class around it and, and then I created a partnership where we can help. And really everything is about taking away the barriers so they can feel comfortable getting into it. Um, I felt like just kind of meeting people through my life. There's a lot of people interested in buying real estate. And then one in 10 of those actually does. And then one in 10 of those buys more than one. And so there's kind of a, um, a bit of a, a path there that's got some butterflies to it. And it's got some risk. And, um, and I, I lucked out my first few without knowing, knowing what I know now and made it there. But um, that's really what I wanted to share is to kind of help with that and take away some of the, the challenges so they can really do it. So
0: I love that. So walk me through it. How's it structured? How do you actually make it happen?
2: Yep. So it's a, it's a nine week class. Um, and I charge for it. Um, it's free for my staff unless they don't show up and then they pay. Um, and they go through uh, a lot of different theory stuff. We go through my deal analyzing spreadsheets, um, I made a game actually that um, takes someone through the career of an investor. It's like Monopoly on steroids for adults, and it's like a three-year investment career as a Monopoly game kind of. Um, and we play that in one of the sessions. Um, we go look at deals. I buy a house through the class, so I kind of sign myself up to find a deal in the first three weeks of the class and then execute it. And just to everything we do is about um showing you know making this a very visceral experience and how easy this really is to do um and crunch the numbers and make it happen we have a couple bankers come in on one of the classes and and just have an open forum with them so they can kind of get the butterflies away of talking with the banker and then we dive through the pfs and talk about how to write that appropriately um and I kind of after we get through the whole thing, the capstone of it is really coming up with, um, you know, how much do you need passive income to um, survive um, when you retire? And then when do you want that to be? And um, well, so basically the heirloom partnership is um, we we start with basically a plan of how much passive income um, would be ideal to have when they want to retire. And so there's a dollar amount, there's a date, and so that's 10, 15, 20 years out depending on their age, and it's a dollar amount. Um, And and then we work backwards into how many deals they have to do in our market, given our parameters of what makes a good deal in our market. Um, And that always spells out a story that's way more attainable than you'd think. It ends up being one or two a year. And then to really help make that happen, we really encourage our staff to, to do it themselves. But if they can't, or if they can maybe only do one and then they want to, they got to wait for a little while and let their um, financials catch up, we have a partnership program where we can partner with them and um, help them with the financing. So they never have to walk into a bank and they can um, basically get part of the equity for bringing us the deal.
0: Very cool. Yeah. All right. So you're like, you're really into this. Like there's, there's quite I'm a bit really of infrastructure it. here.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, do you and have it makes
0: it- a- well, I was, I
2: was going yeah. to say it makes our culture really sticky um, because it, it's not just a job. We're all excited about actually where, you know, this is going and, um, and over half our staff now owns rental property and it's kind of cool to see them all on that path and they're on a, they're on a journey that's for themselves just as rewarding as it is to just kind of actually engage in what we're doing day to day, you know, business.
0: Yeah, that is awesome. So how does the partnership work? When you say that over half the staff owns real estate, do they actually own it outright, like name on the deed or through this vehicle that you described?
2: Yeah, so um, it's an LLC. It's a one-on-one LLC between um, our entity and and each employee. Um, When they decide they want to do one, we we have that kind of pre-made and we make that. And then um, we give them... um, 25 or 30% of the equity um, of the deal for bringing the deal forward. And it's got to fit all my parameters, which we go through in the class and they learn. And that's a good learning experience because there's sometimes they kind of run a couple through and then they don't work. And and so what it does is it allows them to bring a deal forward, actually execute it, own a piece of it without uh, having to like, you know, the scary part of actually doing it. And the reality is, like, we could. The idea is not to just do that forever for somebody. Um, And it wouldn't be smart for them to do that. This really is just a a way to take away the barriers so they can engage and get going. Trails. Right. Once they do a couple, they're going to do the next one on their own. And they should. And they'll own all the equity in it. Um, But this is a way to have essentially no excuse. Like, Go in the market, find a deal. You find one, bring it here, and you can have a piece of it. It's all you got to do.
0: All right. So give me like some parameters. I want to hear like how granular this actually gets for the team member.
2: Yeah. So, um, our market is, is pretty strong, um, cap rate wise. So, um, uh, you know, we have a couple different vehicles for buying, I don't know how I like to find value, I call it. Um, and so if we have no money in a deal, um, essentially because we create some sweat equity or something like that through renovation um, or, you know, finding something undervalued, um, then we'll go down to a 9% cap rate. Um, and at an 11% cap rate, we'll, you know, put in a 20% down payment. Um, and so in between there, there can be all kinds of different um, performances and all kinds of different amounts required. In like, you can do some improvement on a property, and, you know, still have to put a little cash in, but you don't put 20% in. Um, and so it's basically between 9 and 11 is kind of our parameters for where we want to end up with an asset. And it really de- and it's really based on how much cash we have in. And so, so say they find a really great deal, it's an 11% cap rate, and we got to put 20% in. Um, they're 30% of that 20%. So say it's a $100,000 home, it's 20 grand down. They have to bring in six thousand. I have to bring in uh, fourteen thousand. I'll finance the six and take that out of the first rents. Um, so they really don't have to bring a dollar wow. in. Wow. Yeah, and they're wow. they're really getting it back. You know, it's out of their end. Um, you know, so it's just their first six thousand in rents would come in to cover their end. So yeah, it's kind of oh, cool.
0: Yeah, this is really fascinating. I mean, you're making the bar. So stinking low here, how long have you actually how long has this been in place for? A couple of years. Have you had any folks that have bought in and gone through this process then leave the team?
2: Um no, none that have left yet. Um, although it's pretty easy with the, the buy-sell thing. There's a pre-written buy sell. I mean, the, the control is really, really structured. So I have all of it. So I'm on the risk, I'm, I'm on the hook for the debt. Um, so I have all the control and that's just the deal up front. Um, but, um, what's surprising about it is actually we went through all this work. I thought everybody would dive in and I'd almost have to like have some, you know, rein it in at some point. And that's not the case after they go through all of it. Then they just get the courage to do it themselves. And that's actually awesome. Oh, right. Yeah. And so we do a couple, we've done a couple, we don't do a ton of them, but it, what it really does is it really puts them in the shoes of doing it. And then once they do it and they realize that like, oh, I'm gonna find this whole thing and I know how to do all this stuff. And then, and then really all it is, is just this little equity bit. And um, that's how I, I own 30% of it or 100% of it. And then all of a sudden they start to kind of start to figure that out and become real investors. I love the saying that you're not an investor until you're out of money. Like, <laughs> Because then you're just buying stuff and you just have cash. <laughs> yeah.
0: Love it. Well, this is really fascinating to me to see how you're providing this inspiration and path towards financial freedom, it is challenging to think of something that's going to be stickier than that, right? When you think about the paths of how to get employee uh, engagement and retention, you got a couple of different options. One is to have a company that's really just growing aggressively. It's constantly expanding, adding revenue, adding new levels of management, and therefore it's a very long ladder to climb. That obviously is an exciting model, but it assumes quite a bit of top-line revenue growth. What you're describing is a path that provides an exciting financial outcome that is not dependent upon the company growing three or four times its size over the next few years, right? I mean, people could be riding this wave for the next 10 or 20 years working with you.
2: Absolutely, yep.
0: So, in your own investing career, you mentioned that you're doing less on the single family side and more into other asset classes. What asset classes and why?
2: Um, I I just come a bit of an alchemist. I like to try stuff. Um, So, um, I'm still definitely doing some single family uh, projects, but I've definitely gotten into bigger renovation projects like multi unit buildings that need a lot of work. Um, We have a social mission in our business to improve our neighborhoods. And so, I you know as an investor who's kind of set, um, and I'm, I'm a little more. I guess a part of small truism and what I like to do. And so uh, recently we took on a ninety thousand square foot school um, that um, is going to become sixty eight apartments. That's a big. That's our first big big renovation, um, and I'm excited to to do that and pull that off. And and if we can do it, do it again. And you know we are we just started a, a five plex remodel a week ago. So I'm still doing some some. Uh, kind of one to five family or one to eight family type stuff but getting into a couple bigger things is kind of just i just want to to try and see and learn so
0: walk me through that project you said you're converting a school into an apartment complex
2: yep yep so it's a good location in our city and um our school district went through a restructuring and closed eight schools and tore down three and selling the other five and built some new ones and so this was one of the ones and um for one reason or another I didn't qualify for any low income credits, um, because a lot of it was too new. And, um, and so, um, it was a more challenging one to, for them to get sold. And so the price point came down so it was pretty attractive. Um, so we're really just turning every classroom into essentially a one or two bedroom apartment, um, re-skinning the hallways to make it look like a nice modern kind of hotel apartment complex type thing. Um, and then we're going to have a daycare in one end of it. So, um it's kind of in the heart of our city and um repurposing the school as an apartment building yeah
0: really cool project
1: Hey, Daniel Craig here with Profit Coach. You've probably heard Jordan talk on the podcast about the NARPUM accounting standards that we authored on behalf of NARPAM. This groundbreaking initiative standardizes financial reporting for the property management industry, and we're committed to helping as many companies as possible get on the standard this year. If you'd like to get converted, we'd love to help with one of our two conversion packages. The first gets you converted on a go-forward basis only, and the second actually converts you on a historical basis going back two full years, and that comes with a comprehensive financial performance report that provides a deep dive analysis of your financial performance in over 30 financial KPIs and compares your performance to key industry financial benchmarks. Go to pmprofitcoach.com forward slash NAS for details, and be sure to mention this ad for a special 10% off discount. That's pmprofitcoach.com forward slash NAS.
0: How do you, in general, how do you think about the upside of multifamily versus single family as an investment vehicle?
2: Um, I think that multifamily has, is, is definitely more in the buy and hold, like staying power. Um, it, it's, kind of, it, it's kind of a catch 22. Um, I think that you can definitely find some great, great, great deals in single family and duplexes and stuff like that better than you can find in multifamily because they're big. Um, but once you get to a certain point where, you know, doing 20 home transactions literally is a lot of time and hours to find them and close them and all that stuff versus the equivalent of just one apartment complex, there comes a point where you're willing to, you know, sacrifice a little return for volume because you're just looking to grow at that volume. Um, so there's that component. Um, I think the other component is like uh, I've kind of seen it right now with, with single family stuff is that, you know, five to eight years ago, you'd buy it for half of what you pay for it now. And a lot of that stuff is getting sold and reconverted back to home ownership. Whereas the bigger apartment buildings really stay that for, you know, that's not going to get, that's not going to bounce back and forth between rental and home ownership with the throes of uh home buyer demand, you know, every decade. So.
0: Got it. So in terms of, where the overall portfolio is headed. You're doing this project. How much time does a project like that suck up relative to day-to-day operations? I think for a lot of folks, here, they hear that, and they're like, man, like I'm pretty tied up just running my company, converting a school into an apartment complex on the side. That sounds like a pretty aggressive hobby time-wise. Like, how do you manage, how do you balance it all?
2: Um, construction's always kind of been on our forefront. So um, so that's just as comfortable as property management. Most of the portfolio that we have is um has been renovated. It's a uh, one of the big vehicles that we get into building equity um and having the rinse and repeat um kind of buying process, the buy and hold process. Um so the construction part's comfortable. Um, but yeah, I really look at running like three businesses our construction business, manager business, investment portfolio, and they're separate. And, um, I'm a very hands-off, uh, investor and I give it to the businesses and we have pretty good leaders. And so I really focus on the businesses and the investment thing is truly pretty passive. So our construction leader is really kind of leading that project.
0: Interesting. So in your situation, you've designed it in such a way that you're responsible for making the deal happen, making the financing happen, but you've built your companies in such a way that they can actually facilitate the oversight of the, of the, uh, financial return post closing the transaction.
2: Yep. A lot of one to four family type stuff now. Um, I don't see it again after closing ever. Like it basically goes to them. They go through, put the scope together. We look at that in our office, they do the remodel and it goes to a property manager, get rented, um, or sold if we are doing a flip. Um, this commercial one, I'll see a little bit more cause we have some more design stuff to kind of talk through and things like that. But, we've kind of got that smaller thing down pretty well. And we also do that for other people. So it's not just me, that's just kind of how it initially got made. Um, but um, our portfolio is about 500 homes. And so there's a lot of other investors in there too, that we're doing remodeling for and um, doing the same kind of thing when they buy something. In our market, remodeling is really needed um, to, um, that's where the value is. So that's just kind of, we built ourselves to fit our market. We need to really be a remodeler and heavy maintenance to, make it go in this town um, to find, you know, good deals. And, you know, so that's just kind of what we built.
0: What about helping your existing clients expand their investment portfolio? Um, Is that something you guys advertise or facilitate, or do you just kind of allow them to lead and then help them once they've come to you with a, with a need?
2: It's a bit of both. Um, It's kind of hard to find deals for all of them all the time. So, sure. um, you know, I'd advocate for them to be able to, you know, do that on their own as well. I think any investor really, um, if they're just going to go try and find an agent to make their investment portfolio happen, it's kind of a, it's kind of a fool's errand. and you should learn the game and be able to drive the game. Um, and then we try to be a really strong partner there so, um, we can walk through it and let you know what it'll rent for. And that's kind of a no BS assessment because we're going to have to deliver if you buy it. And it's not just a real or opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the same thing with the construction, which is even harder as we can go through and say, this is going to cost this to fix up and get to this rent rate. And that that is a formula of a person that can walk through and do both of those. Here's what you got to put in and here's what you're going to get out of it. Um, really helps an investor size up their investment. So, oh, yeah. so finding the deal, they, they need to learn how to find their deals and we'll help with that when they come along. But we can help on that other end of executing.
0: Totally makes sense that there's a lot of trust involved there when you say that you're going to do X, Y, Z, and then the rent return is actually going to happen. There's definitely some pressure there. Let's talk a little bit about managing third-party vendors. How are you structured in terms of maintenance?
2: Um, So we have a maintenance department. Um, We we call it a small projects department, and then we call it a large projects department. So three departments, each of the lead or supervisor over the leads. Um, and there's shared staff between them all. Um, so maintenance to us is time of material work. So it's just materials and, and labor, It's just the little things, the broken faucets and, um, broken windows and, um, uh, tenant requested work orders, stuff like that. Rental inspection work orders, small projects will be something that requires a quote. So you want to quote, it's kind of a different person that uh, gets that quote out, does diagnosis, stuff like that on um, kind of the problematic things to solve um and that structure just kind of came out of a lot of iteration this has been a huge kind of evolving thing as we grew it used to be one person doing all these things and really getting to the size where we could break it up and have the right hats and the right people really worked out well to break it up this way um where they're all delivering margin dollars for the business um efficiently and going to get their tasks done so time material we have quoted work and then we just have really large quoted work. So our small projects versus big projects definition is um one of it's kind of a single trade. Like you want you need new windows, you need a new roof, you need a quote on re-carpet and repaint, that would be a small project. If you want to renovate a you know apartment building, that's a big project. It's gonna have a lot of different vendors through there, a lot of different trades. It's a very much more complicated estimate. And so it's really those, that's kind of how we skin it.
0: So the, but the maintenance businesses are part of the property management company. Is that correct?
2: Technically they all are. Um, I really like to look at it all as one because we only fly under the airline property management name. Our construction business is probably two or three times the size, but we don't have a name for it. It gets all of its revenue and all of its customers through clients of the property management business. So why wouldn't it be, you know, it's really just a, a monetizing big construction medium and small construction all through the, for the property, for the owners that we work for.
0: How do you maintain financial clarity on the performance of the individual business units?
2: Departmentalized bookkeeping. Um, So each portfolio is a department, each construction area is a department. Um, And we've kind of drilled that back to a ratio of admin dollars to top line Mm -hmm. revenue based on, um, the margins, which first we had to get our, you know, direct margin consistent and then, yeah. And then we create a bonus structure, a financial bonus structure for performance, um, beyond that. So you're using
0: an, an expense apportionment model to be able to figure out
2: the cost. That's how we budget. Yep. Um, that's how we set up our, like our plan for the year and then our bonus structure. Yeah.
0: What percentage of work orders do you think are going outside the company to third party vendors just like ballpark roughly
2: mm, uh let's see our our kind of by volume um our maintenance department's about fifty thousand dollars a month in revenue small projects about forty thousand dollars a month in revenue construction's about one fifty a month in revenue um so all combined they're about two fifty a month in revenue um And so that's kind of a hard one to answer. So we're just talking about just typical maintenance. Um, It's about a 50 50. Um, It's getting handled by a plumber, appliance repair, drain cleaner type of vendor or something like that. Um, And the bigger construction stuff, it's probably a a 90 10 or 90% of it is vendors, 10% is our actual hourly staff. Mm -hmm. Got it. So we're we're a bit of a GC in a small space. So we only have six. Um, hourly staff,
0: only six hourly staff. Okay. What about maintenance coordination? Do you have more than one person handling
2: that? Yep. So one maintenance coordinator, one, and then basically two project coordinators, so you have three coordinators, six field staff.
0: What is the difference between what a project coordinator does? The the project coordinator handle handles like one off construction stuff. Just one maintenance coordinator for the maintenance for 500 units. Is that correct? Right. Yep. Okay. That's interesting. How does... Uh...
2: But there's also a small project coordinator for us. So they really both of those two together cover off all the work orders. So the small project guy only really does vendors. The maintenance coordinator for us um, is the time and material. So those two together, essentially, in probably a lot of businesses, you call them both maintenance coordinators. Got it. Um, okay. Yeah. We used to have that be just one person. We just broke the job up into two and they kind of have different versions of the same job
0: software wise. What are you, are you using to manage the logistics? there? are you using something like property meld or the property management software.
2: Mm, that's kind of worms. Um, so, um, started with property meld it wasn't a good fit for us cause we we're just pretty construction heavy and we share staff between a lot of different projects. And, um, so I made my own, <laughs> so I made my own workflow management software. Uh, I got uh, into SQL. And just made a, a tool. Um, and my, uh, my last name is Shrepfer, And so they, my staff calls it Shrepfolio because we use that folio for product property management. And then whenever it doesn't work, they call it Shrimpfolio. Um, so now it's just called Shrimpfolio. <laughs> but that's so, so Shrimpfolio is really how we manage it. <laughs> but it works well. It works really well.
0: Got it. Tripfolio. Okay. Well, for those of you listening at home, do not try this at home building your own property management software on the side. Okay. So so how's that going? Was that a, what's the upside? Was that a good idea in retrospect? Like, give me some details.
2: Yeah, we started last, it went live last June for some iteration, June, July. Um, and you know, we're a small business. Um, so it's not a lot of people in there. There's probably a dozen people in there, but what it does, is it it allows you know so it's the timesheet. it is the workflow management. it is the reporting for our property managers and every work order that's open. Um, it allows our property managers to put in parameters. So one of the key things I learned is like property manager talks to an owner about a hallway that needs to get painted. And the owner says, Yeah, let's do it. And and then uh, a bill comes back and it's way more than they thought it would be because the hallway's got six doors and the plaster was broken and it was $2,500 to do. And they're like, Oh, I didn't think it was going to cost that much to paint. The reality is, everybody's got an assumption of what a cost is going to be, whether they have a quote or not, right? They still like there's a certain amount that's okay and there's a certain amount that's too much. And so we needed a vehicle for our property managers to without a quote on a time material projects, they'll kind of put in like some barriers, like an assumption, like um, don't turn this into a black hole. I'm, I'm, this is approved, but I'm kind of thinking it's 500 bucks or $800 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool for that. You know, it's got a red and yellow green feature. So as our guys put in their time in real time on their phone, on their timesheet, um, it basically accumulates cost on these work orders and then that's reportable in real time to property managers. Um, and then the p- coordinator himself can actually just move things through, it's an automated Kanban board is really what that's has to be. Mm-hmm. And it moves things through the phases of work orders. Because um, because an operation like ours, we have any given time, we have 50, 60 open work orders in some stage of production, um, whether it's new or it's in process. Um, and, or it's, you know, waiting on a, a vendor quote or it's waiting on something and keeping all that organized, um, reportable and having information in real time. What we found a lot was that, you know, you guys would go do something, you get the bill and no one really knows how much something costs a couple of weeks after it was done. Mm-hmm. And and then you're going to the owner and saying, Oh, this was a little bit more than we thought or, or the owner's finding it on their statement. And so we really just kind of wanted to nip all that stuff in the butt. And, uh, that was kind of our solution to doing it.
0: So are you technical or did you pay a third party to build this?
2: Oh, I built it myself. Um, we are rebuilding it now with a third party. Um, and I've gone through a couple of different ones cause I'm cheap. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, no, we're going to, we're going to make this into something that's actually, um, more sustainable. So I'm not, I'm not, it's, it's been live since June. So we're going on 10 months. It's working good. Um, it's got a couple of kinks. It's not perfect. It's homemade. Um, but we can see our margin on a lot of different things. And we've definitely found a few different areas where we can make a few dollars that we were just kind of leaving on the floor because we have it organized. Um, I could explain a couple of those, but basically, um, it's, it's worked well. So now we're going to spend, you know, the big dollars and actually have it built. And the few people that we've gotten quotes from to build it, um, love it because it's a working beta. You know, it's it's Mm -hmm. like it's all fleshed out. There's no I want just to do this stuff. So it's not an idea, it's a working thing. So
0: so one more time, what was the specific use case that you highlighted that made property meld not a great fit for what you're trying to do here?
2: Um, we tried it. Um I like property meld a lot. I think it's cool software. I like Ray and I like um Everything about kind of what that does, I think property meld to me is a really good fit for someone who is, you know, I'm I'm a contractor first, probably. I'm a property manager for sure, um, know all that stuff, but I'm also definitely a contractor. And um, and if you know, a property mail is probably more for someone who's a, a realtor first or comes from a non-experienced side of construction. Because um, I really want to see. Margin. I want to see margin in a lot of different areas. I want to see the financials on how this stuff is flowing through. I need WIP numbers to measure real performance for my um, maintenance coordinator, my small project coordinator. Uh, this system also works for my big projects, by the way. So it works for that whole construction department. Um, and um, and so we need we use Sage for our accounting, and we need to have work in progress to really monitor our actual margin performance every month. So
0: what property management software are you on? Are you you? Got it. Okay. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Well, I didn't expect that was going to come up that you've home <laughs> your own software, but, um, yeah, we'll have to get a report back. What, when do you think the new version of that will be ready in house?
2: Oh, I don't know. Um, probably about a month after it officially breaks, um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I probably sometime this year. So, Got it. Found someone to build it with.
0: Okay, all right. So, in closing, I'd love to hear just like some wisdom from you on what you think. What you know? What do you wish you knew when you first got started in the business? the The evolution that I see with most business owners is they. Get freedom from a job from day one. They're hustling, grinding, doing their own thing. And it's exciting. And the reward from that can take you pretty far because for a while, you're focused on just like building an income and and being able to survive. A subset of folks actually graduate to asking and questioning and requiring a financial outcome as a owner of the business, i.e. profit. As you've evolved in making that shift, what have been some inflection points and some big aha moments that have really moved the needle for you?
2: Hmm. There's a few, um, separating myself from, you know, the leader of a business to also being the role of equity. So the ownership, you know, right. This thing is supposed to have a return and really you know, being able to communicate that, um, as if it weren't to myself, um, but being able to communicate that, I think a mentor really helped me clear that up that I need to go communicate that all the time. Um, and it's really easy to not know that, uh, to the right amount of clarity because you're just doing it for yourself. So that was neat, um, to kind of call it the role of equity, um, and lagging indicators versus leading indicators and really getting into leading indicators. I think that's a really interesting thing that you just kind of don't start out looking at. We start out looking at kind of the totals of stuff um, and really getting into the, the the small operational things that really actually uh, deliver that performance. Um, I think that's been a big one for me. Um, Any examples of, of that? Hmm. I think a good one, like for leasing, um, like I love to know how many showings are on the schedule. Um, so we have, uh, we do renewals in our market. You can show stuff while people are living in it. So we do renewals, um, 90 days in advance, um, and start showing them. And so we have 50 leases that are open, you know, T minus 60 days, um, that sounds like a lot, like we got to get those rented, but if we have 35 showings on the books next week, then, um, that's a lot different than if we have 10. Um, Mm. and so, um, there's a ratio that we're kind of working out and it's kind of in our scorecard and we're, we're refining that, but it's really helped give a lot more clarity of if there's an issue or if there's not. So we really like to see a one-to-one ratio of showings to, um, um, of book showings in the future to open leases um, at about like the, you know, 30 to 45 day mark. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a neat leading indicator that we're going to have a problem leasing or not. Mm-hmm. Um, or a vacancy problem or not. So like, that's just kind of a simple one that we've kind of drilled down to. Um, there's a couple others like delinquency kind of just, you know, knowing where that's at on the fifth of the month really helps us know where it's going to end up at the end of the month and, we haven't had an eviction in four years and really proud of that. Um, so we're pretty tight with the delinquency process. Um, so those things, um, that's been just a big, big change for me and kind of growing as a leader. I think the other one is a leader is you know, started out kind of a hard charging leader, like I think a lot do in the entrepreneurial world and kind of realizing that as I built a team around me, I need to transform to much more of a supportive leader that is, has people around me that know more than I do and they're hard charging like I, I like I am or used to be, and my job is to to um, let them shine. And that's how they really actually flourish. Um, they can't always be, you know underneath me. They have to really be uh, ahead of me as far as like, their accomplishments.:
0: Love it. Awesome.: yeah. Well, this is something that I think is going to be stimulating for a lot of business owners that are hearing this and asking themselves, is this something that I could do that I would want to do to help my team be more invested in the company by me getting more invested in them and their financial Mm -hmm. outcome? For a lot of property management entrepreneurs, it's easy to um, complain about Staff, right? I mean, staffing is just one of those things where it's like, uh, it's a constant potential source of frustration. But looking at it on the low level, Joe, Sally isn't doing their job is a lot more myopic than looking at it from the level of what kind of a future are we creating for people? What kind of a future is this company uh, building for people that join the team? I think that's where people aspire to get, but there's got to be some weight and substance. And so helping your team invest seems like one path to get there. So hats off to you for actually making that happen. I want to stay in touch follow the, the progression of that. If folks want to learn more about that, could they get in touch to get some more details from you on that? And if so, what's the best
2: way to do that? Sure. Uh, Mike at rent is my email. Um, happy to share anything I got with anybody.
0: Mike at dot
2: Rentwithairloom.com.
0: Rentwithairloom.com. Thanks for the correction. All right, man. Let's close it here. I ask this to every guest. I'm going to ask you, Mike, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred?
2: Hmm. It's a tough one. I think that they're um bred because there's probably something that's innate in people, but there's so much more to entrepreneurship than you know, the raw, you know, part that you might be born with. Um, to really be successful in the term, and not have a business that, you know, fails in the first couple of years. Um, I think there's a lot of breeding, um, there's a lot of breeding and tutelage and, uh, learning that goes into that. So I'd go with the bad part.
0: All right. So what I hear you saying there is that there may be a seed of ability or talent, but it's more likely to be determined by, um, uh, the nurture side of things and whether or not that was enabled to flourish or not. Yeah. I hear you. I appreciate you coming on the next time that you are not in sub-zero weather. Maybe if you're in the Texas area, let me know. I'd love to break bread. Uh, Plan on seeing you on the road. Guys, if if you see Mike at an event, pull him aside. Get them to give you all the nitty gritty and the details. I like this strategy. I think there's a lot of merit there, and uh, I like what you're doing, Man. You're you're really you're invested in your people and you're invested in your community. I cannot imagine that that's not going to yield disproportionate outcomes. We already see that it is. Thanks again for coming on.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Have a good one.